Father, as we think together now about being men at war and pursuing an undistracted passion for you, would you come and help us to make this next hour life-changing for your namesake? I pray that you would do a deep work. Lord, we don't want to just adjust the externals. We don't want to go back with mere external resolves to change a few outward patterns of behavior. We want to be touched within, made new within, made stronger within. We want to be the kind of men who act from the inside out, not trying to conform our behaviors to external pressures, but who are naturally driven from the inside out Godward. So, Lord, would you reveal yourself to us? Would you stand forth from your word now, I pray? You've said that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. And it's faith that is the great worker in the Christian life. If we try to work other than by faith in the promises of God, we become legalists and mere whitewashed tombs. And so I pray, O oh God, for an inner work. I pray that you'd go into us now and that you would soften hearts, that you would take out hearts of stone and put in hearts of flesh and that you would penetrate through layers of resistance that have been built up over years, Lord. I pray, O oh God, that you would be a mighty, transforming, inner agent of change. Lord, we want to know you deeper. We want to love you more. We want the sweetness that we read about in the Bible. We want the kind of commitment that Paul spoke of when he said that he counts everything as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. We want to feel that surpassing value, not just say it with our lips, but feel it in our hearts the way we feel desires to watch the Vikings win another game or the way we desire to get a bonus check in the mail at the end of the year, or the way we desire to find that perfect spouse or that great sexual encounter. Lord, there are desires that are in our hearts and we long that Paul's experience, I count everything as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. Indeed, I count everything as rubbish in comparison with him that I might gain Christ so, Lord, we want to gain Christ eternally, and we want to gain him now temporally, and we want our hearts to be engaged with him. And so I plead with you, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and for the glory of Christ, that you would come in these minutes and open our hearts to see and to receive and to be transformed, our values transformed, O oh God. So we love who you are and what you love more than we love anything in the world. So that when we sing these songs, that you are my all in all, we really mean it from the bottom of our hearts. And those around us, our wives, our children, our 
friends, our roommates, our workmates would say, what's happened to you? Why do you feel the way you feel? Why do you talk the way you talk? So come now, Lord, and please guide me as I try to lead us through these next few minutes. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I have a little bit of a plan here for the next little while, but I'm going to need your help to flesh it out, and that's why I prayed for you the way I did. Because I was, there were some surprises on the survey to me, and, and they have altered the way I've thought about this morning. Uh, let me mention one of them. About eight or ten years ago, some of us on the staff would remember, perhaps better than I do, when we had a men's retreat, and we uh, took a survey as to what the big issues were, and the big issue was anger. And that's not the issue in this gathering, if you're telling the truth. It's not the issue. It's not anywhere near the top of the issues. Um, it didn't even come into the first nine. And that, frankly, blew me away. So uh, either um, times have changed or you've changed. I mean, you're a different group, of course, um, or something else. So uh, I'm not going to minimize that because that's still a, a big issue for lots of people. But that surprised me. Let me try to tell you the, the plan that I have here, and then I'm going to get your feedback a little bit along the way. Um, I'm going to tell you what the top issues are for you, according to the survey, and then I'm going to address what I think is a bottom line issue, a bottom line need underneath some of those. Um, and, and then I'm going to ask for your help and your insight about some of them and why you think they are the way they are, why, why the condition is the way it is. And... Uh, I think I'll, I'll end up talking about lust perhaps this morning. But let me go ahead and give you the, and then we're going we're to have two testimonies, one from Rod Takata and one from Lynn Reed. And, uh, and then we're going to do some small group work and that'll pretty much take us up to lunchtime as we close with some worship. Fifty-four of you are married. And 32 of you are single. And um, 10 are 18 to 25. And 29 are 26 to 35. And 33 are 36 to 45. And 14 are over 45. Then I think some uh, bad news, at least it sets an agenda for me, for how to think about increasing our capacities as effective warriors have to do with some of the uh, degrees of time that you engage in the Word. Number three, on average, how frequently during the week do you spend time in solitude reading the Bible and praying? 
And only 15 of you do it daily. I find that shocking. Um, 12, 6 out of 7 days. 15, 5 out of 7 days. 14, 4 out of 7 days. 5, 3 out of 7 days. 10, 2 days a week. And I can't read this, whether it's 13 or 18. I think it's 13 probably. Is uh, one day a week or less. We'll come back to that because it relates to other responses on the sin chart. Um, if married, on average, how frequently do you or your spouse pray together alone, not including the children and not including grace at meals? So just sometime where just you and a spouse do that and this is only the married people who are responding here. And seven do it daily. I'll skip over to the end. Thirty-eight do it one day a week or less. Twenty-one of those thirty-eight never or only in crises. So twenty-one married men, that's almost half of this group, never regularly pray with your wives except perhaps at meals or with the children. I'm going to ask you why that is later on. I want, I want some of you who are in that condition uh, to be honest with me and tell me what the hang-up is. What are the big obstacles to doing that? Because um, that's important to do. To be, I'll tell you the bottom line reason for why it's important to do it. The main meaning of marriage in the universe, as God created it, is to model the relationship between God and his church, or Christ and his church. That's the main meaning of marriage in the world. Now, the world doesn't have a clue about the meaning of marriage, which is why marriages, you can do anything you want with them. But the church, we people who know the word of God, who know the revelation of why he has done what he's done, we know why he created marriage. And he created it as a drama of how Christ and his bride relate. And therefore, our job as leaders in the home is to work toward that. And I will be the first to confess that our marriage does not measure up to modeling the beauty of Christ and his church. But that's my goal. And so that's why prayer together is important. That's one of the reasons. There are other reasons, but we'll come back to that. If you have children at home, on average, how frequently do you lead them and your wife in a time of Bible reading and prayer? Nine of the 54 married men said daily. And 27 said one day a week or less. 15 of those 27 never or only in crises. So 15 out of the married men here um, do not lead children and wife in a time of 
Bible reading and prayer. We need to ponder what that will mean for these children as they grow up. How frequently do you give in to looking at sexually explicit material? The, uh, the lust factor in this group is not, is not, um, unusually high. In fact, it, I broke it out in the, in the questionnaire into four levels. Fantasies and mental preoccupations and pornography and touching and sexual intercourse. I tried to move it from the mind out to the... And um, on the question here about how frequently do you give in, 56 of you said less than monthly, which was encouraging to me. That as far as the actual... Say, going out of your way to view sexually explicit material in magazines, TV, video, or Internet, uh, 56 out of the 86 of you said less than monthly. 16 said monthly, 3 every two weeks, 6 once a day, and so on, once a week, and so on. Now, I, I praise God for that. I really do. I praise God that at that level, at least, of fighting the battle, there is a significant measure of triumph because there are people who simply live on pornography. Um, and those of you who are in that category of, of sense of failure can learn from the other 56 that there are measures of triumph to be had in the battle against giving in to looking at sexually explicit material. Let me tell you what the top seven or eight battles were from the sheet where you circled a one through ten. By the way, you should really thank God for those who tabulated these. It took them till 12 o'clock last night, I think, two and a half hours or so to do this. I didn't realize I was creating such an awful instrument when I did this. And I'm, I'm sorry, and, and I love those guys for the work they put into this. It really will help me not only here but uh, in, in the days to come. Uh, tying for first place in the intensity of struggle. I'll tell you how I decided to measure intensity of struggle. I took the 7, 8, 9, and 10 and added them up. So the total of you um, totaling the 7, 8, 9, and 10. So I figured if you circled 7 or above, there was some measure of, of intensity. And then I compared those totals to come up with which of the categories were the most intense. Uh, lust did tie for number one. That is the sexual fantasies and mental preoccupations with sexual things. Forty-five of you circled seven or above. But tied at 45 were feelings of inferiority that hinder courageous behavior. That, that was news to me. Feelings of inferiority that hinder courageous behavior. And uh, I'm not just sure what kind of inferiority each of you means, but it will be good perhaps to talk about how that relates to our time in the Word. Number three 
right behind 45 is 44, and it's um, a sense of failure in spiritual things that hinders fresh initiative. And I would guess that that's very closely related to a sense of inferiority that hinders courageous behavior. A sense of failure in spiritual things that hinders fresh initiatives. 44 of you circled 7 or above. That's over half of you. A sense of failure in spiritual things. And I would guess that that relates to the fact that there is failure in spiritual things. It's not just a sense of failure. There is failure in spiritual things to a measure. And we need to deal with real failure. Not just kind of talk about our bad feelings about ourselves, but what, what have we done that make some of those bad feelings legitimate? Perhaps some of them are illegitimate. You may have, we were talk, I was talking with Russ at the back there about this, and, and he said maybe it was what you addressed last night in part, namely that at Bethlehem there are relentlessly high expectations raised in terms of passion, in terms of being utterly sold out for God, so that um, all of us, I would guess, as you lift up, say, somebody like the Apostle Paul, who says, I count everything as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, and I'm ready to lay down my life and to live as Christ and to die as gain, and you sit there feeling like, well, maybe during one or two worship songs, <laughs> I feel like that. But, and, and so that may be part of it, that we do at Bethlehem go hard after God and lift that up, which is why there might be some true and some false expectations raised there because if you begin to measure your passion by certain forms of it, you might beat yourself up unnecessarily. So that's number three, a failure in spiritual things that hinders fresh initiatives. Number four, very close on the heels of that with 41, is a love of praise. Strong desires for human approval and applause. So a strong sense of inferiority and a sense of failure with a very great love of being liked and being approved and applauded makes for some measure of misery, I would think, among us. And some great temptations to be hypocrites, I would think. In other words, if you, if you long to be liked, if you long to be approved, if you want people to tell you you've done a good job and, and who doesn't, that, that is, that's a given. Nobody likes to be criticized. Everybody likes to be approved. And it just can get out of whack. And if you feel inferior and inadequate and that desire is strong enough, then the natural thing to do, not the spiritual thing, but the natural thing would be to fake it. That is, uh, don't let anybody know your sense of inferiority. Do whatever you have to do outwardly to get the approval of the people around you that are the significant people that you want to approve you. And so I didn't put down on here hypocrisy or struggles with hypocrisy, but I think if I were doing it over again, I might. But it's very interesting that dishonesty is one of the lowest struggles in here. Maybe you thought of it in terms of lying about money or whatever, and that's wonderful. I, I praise God that lying or not telling the truth is, is not for 69 of you, uh, four or above. For 12 of you, it's, it's big. 
but that was significant, which, which means I, it, I, I would guess we're a pretty, pretty straightforward and authentic bunch here, and you're willing probably to say it like it is, even if it's not great. Number five, after love of praise, at 35, so we started at 45, then 44, 41, now 35, a critical spirit. And that does not surprise me. I would have expected it, in fact, to be higher. A critical spirit, a bent toward finding fault rather than verbally building up. Next is anxiety, worrying about the future, 34. Next is impatience, 33. Next are guilt feelings, that kind of amorphous uh, thing that don't seem to go away even when sins are confessed, 30. 29. Sullen, withdrawn. So the last, the last one I'll mention is that being sullen and withdrawn and losing the desire to communicate. The lowest ones, I'll mention the four lowest struggles. Sexual intercourse. In other words, that the struggle to actually get in bed with somebody not your wife is the lowest struggle. And I thank God for that, though there were some for whom that is a big deal. Um, next is sexual touching. And here I had in mind um, the molestation of your children, your daughters, your sons, the temptation to touch your children inappropriately. And I that's low. Eight people are struggling with that, however, and that's and not just your children, of course, but others. I'll tell you, I'm walking next week, just to let you know, pray for me. Next Tuesday, I have to walk into a pastor's office in this city with another pastor and confront him with child molestation because women have come to us and told us He'll lose his job this Tuesday. He'll never enter the pulpit again unless this pastor and I are totally wrong in the assessment that we have of these women's testimonies. His church will probably blow to pieces. Many of you know this church probably. Just to let you know that this is a big deal, that this is happening. And um, if it's happening to you, you need... To come out with it and confess it and not keep doing it. You need to just fix it. Better to lose your job. Better to spend a few years in jail. Really. There are Bethlehem members who are in jail because of this. One at least. Um, better to do that and come clean and get out on parole in five or six years and be new than to live with the horrendous, horrible, Guilty conscience of molesting, having this impulse to touch little girls. And so getting yourselves jobs or park board roles so that you can have a little in or working in the nursery or just giving in to this very, very awful temptation. There are ways to triumph. I love this song we just sang, that there's a way. There's a way. When there seems no other way, there is a way, brothers. God has a way. We love to say it as a staff on little things like 
you know, how are we going to fit nursery this and how are we going to do classes there? There's a way. God has a way for you to be free and to have your life changed. The third lowest was covetousness and the fourth lowest was dishonesty. Well, that's the survey. Anybody want to make a comment on it or raise a question before I move into something else? Go ahead, Mike. As I originally went over the story yesterday, and I think anger, I was immediately prepared to go on a high end of the scale. And, and until I read the un, but unforgiving hard feeling that's telling people are unforgiving, that, that caused me to go lower. Okay, that may account for it. Um, anger, not legitimate indignation at injustice, but unforgiving hard feelings. Well, I'm still encouraged because I'm not too worried about short-term anger that gets resolved in a relatively short space of time and doesn't result in a hard heart and unforgiveness. It's not too worried about that. If you keep short accounts, provided you don't hit anybody, you know, your wife or your children inappropriately, uh, I'm not too worried about that. But maybe, maybe you've put your finger on why it's lower. Any other comments like that? Or go ahead. I think it was one of when you were talking about. Uh, Touching, I did not understand the word furnail, and I, I, it, from my, when I put it down, I put down something that I, I kind of... It's supposed to be females. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought it was some big word. Touching a furnail. <laughs> Sexual touching of furnails. I should, I should not touch. Are you, are you kidding me? I thought it was something different. Okay, we'll scratch that one. It looks like fur nails, doesn't it? I wouldn't want you to touch those fur nails, guys. I never took a class on statistics or anything. I don't know how to write these things. So. I thought it was like an erotic plant. Or <laughs> Any other helpful comments? That, that, that really was helpful, if I think. Go ahead, Mike and then Scott. I, I think it's good to see results like this, just to let you know that you're not alone. You think you Yes. Right. Mike's comment is that these things are helpful just to let us know we're not alone. And I wanted to, that was my point in stressing it's a fight last night because you can see here that it is. Scott? Um, when you talked about prayer and uh, not including grace at meals, well, what we try to do is make our pre meal prayer significant, not insignificant. Right. So I scored low on that one because okay. um, I, I don't, well, I was kind of thinking, well, gee, this isn't a fair question because grace isn't an insignificant thing. Well, unless it's just finished. Yeah, okay, I hear you. And if you turn pre meal praying into significant 
wife encounter with God so that it's more than thank you for the food, in Jesus' name, amen, then I wish you would put it at the other end. But you're right. I was misleading there. But, well, on the other hand, you don't have the both so, the what? Well, maybe it's better to just, before the meal, say thanks for the food, amen, than after the meal, have extended time. That would, have, that, that would sure qualify for what I had in mind. I was just trying, I, I didn't want this to be skewed by saying, do you ever pray with your wife? And everybody say, yes, because we, we say thanks at meal. I, that would have skewed my goal. That's what I was, that's all I was trying to do. It was, uh, go ahead. I just want to encourage you to make a, a strong invitation that I suspect there are some people, you know, you're saying some people are struggling with having intercourse with people that are alive and touching children. So I suspect there's probably some people who are struggling with those things, and this is the first time they've told anyone about it, even yeah. though it's an yeah. anonymous report. You know, to give an invitation to people to come and talk with you or one of the other pastors that they're right. struggling with. Right. Okay. Well, let's let's just do that right now. That uh, you know, David Livingston's here, and David Michael is here, and elders are here. Why don't the elders stand? There's half a dozen of us or so that are here, just so we know who we are. <coughs> Russ, Randy, Keith, David, Rod, David. Those are the elders who are here, and I'm here. And uh, now, you know, in the free time afterwards, or Call us, make an appointment, and uh, I want you to know that we've, we've been in ministry long enough that we're not surprised by much, and so uh, we won't cluck our tongues at any struggle that you have. I doubt that there would be any I haven't heard before of the most horrendous kind. Um, so, and, and we would love very much to... Struggle with you. There's a future and a hope. There was another hand. In fact, there are too many. I'm going to take two more, and then and then I'm going to stop because I have some things I really want to say here. Go ahead, Russ. It just seemed like there's a direct relationship between a high things like inferiority and lack of courage, spiritual failure, and lack of Bible reading. Yeah. Uh, right. I want to tackle that now. That's why. I'm, but one more. You say that there was, there was uh, one of the high was lust, and yet one of the lows was giving into one of the lowest was giving into pornography. Yeah, the as as I um, the first was lust, which I said sexual fantasies and mental preoccupations with sexual things. 45, high struggle. Pornography, looking at explicit material, 18. So, and, and 56 said less than once a month. Um, so the, the measure of success that is being had is being had at the, at the willpower level of not going into the bookstore or t- getting the video or at least more often than once a month. I mean, large levels of you are succeeding at winning at that level while being defeated, as you judge it, at the mental level. And that's, that is the key level for us to fight at. 
It's a wonderful thing to get victory over not committing fornication. It's wonderful to get victory over not touching those we shouldn't touch. And it's wonderful to get victory over not looking at things we shouldn't look at. But it would be best <laughs> to go to heaven, you know, be perfect. And next, to have more measures of success over our thought life. And, and I would like to, at the end of our time this morning, just talk to you about some strategies that I think can can help you a lot. Well, look, here's, as I ponder, sense of inferiority, um, uh, feelings of inferiority, and, and, and the third, failure in spiritual things, that those two things were right up at the top. And then I saw the, the, the infrequency with which many uh, pray and read the Bible daily, 15 of you only, are reading the Bible and praying daily. Um, if you're married, seven are praying with your wife daily. Um, if you've got children, nine of you are doing it with children and so on. Here's what I feel led to talk about first for a few minutes. What do you do with a sense of failure? I mean, I could, I could start right now and say, shape up for goodness sakes, which, which I don't think is where the gospel starts. If you have a Bible, let's go to Micah. I hadn't planned yesterday in my thoughts about this to, to go to Micah or to talk about this at all, as a matter of fact. So this is a new, New strategy for me this morning, and I pray and hope that it is of the Lord. Micah, one of those hard-to-find little little uh, prophets there toward the end of the Old Testament. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, page 876 in my Bible, which will do you no good at all. <laughs> Seven. Micah chapter seven. How many of you remember the sermon? Gutsy guilt. That phrase. Raise your hand. Okay, maybe ten or fifteen. Well, I preached on this years ago because if one summer, when I was away uh, wrestling with some things in my own life, this was an unbelievably powerful, encouraging word to me for a sense of failure, a sense of inadequacy, because the bottom line in the gospel is justification by faith. Justification by faith means that a holy, awesome God to whom you can never measure up declares you in Christ acceptable, righteous, holy, loved, freely by an act of faith in which you cast yourself upon him for mercy. If that ever gets a hold of you, you will be as bold as a lion in all of your inadequacy. So I think we got to go back to the basics here of Okay, we're all inadequate. Right. What else is news? We're all failures. 
That's who sinners are before a holy God. And probably we haven't begun to feel how full of failure we are. You felt a little bit of it, but probably if we saw God in his holiness and greatness, those negatives would just right down off the chart. I'm, I'm not real eager to stroke you first and say, oh, you're really not as bad as you think you are. Come on, guys, don't feel so bad about yourselves. That's not the biblical strategy. The biblical strategy is you probably haven't begun to see how bad you are, but that's quite irrelevant when it comes to how to be bold and strong in God on the basis of His absolutely free, sovereign grace by which He justifies ungodly people. So I want to just look at two or three basic, bottom-line, glorious texts to help inadequate men forget about making that the issue and make God's mercy and justification the issue in your competencies. So let's read verses 7 through 9, and you'll hear this, I hope. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. That sound like a song we sang? When I fall down, he picks me up. When I am dry, he fills my cup. I doubt that that came from this verse. It just happens to be here because it's all over the Bible. This is gospel. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. I think I think probably those of you who are honest will feel, okay, all right, all right. I have sinned in my neglect of my family or my children or the word or in my caving to sexual fantasies or my failures to be a courageous witness. All right. I have. And that puts you square where verse 8 and 9 are. I will bear, verse 9, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. And then here's this amazing. Until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me, not against me, for me. He will bring me forth to the light. I shall behold his deliverance. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? Now, you, you've got to get this, guys, because who of us does not feel every day in some way like a failure? Like we failed somebody or we've failed ourselves or we've failed some resolution or we failed God or we've. Who does not feel that? And if our sense of being able to pick it up, go on, fight the fight, do a thing that needs to be done, and bear witness to God and 
take up the battle again. If that depends on not having a sense of failure, we'll never, ever rise. We'll never rise. We gotta shift our whole way of thinking. This is where gospel comes in to the secular American mindset that tries with its secularized psychology to find ways of pumping our ego continually. What's the world got except self-esteem? It's got nothing to offer but self-esteem. And therefore, all kinds of classes and all kinds of strategies are constantly fed into your life to say, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay, because you're not going to make it if you don't feel okay. And I'm saying, there's another way. And it's profound. It comes out of the blue. It comes down from God. It's radical. It's different. It's what blew Martin Luther, his mind. It's what blew Calvin. It's what blew Europe apart in the 1500s called the Reformation. They discovered justification by faith. A holy God coming to a hopelessly sinful human being and saying not, you're okay, but I Glorify my grace through justifying the ungodly. And if you could get a handle on that, you would be as bold as a lion. Failures notwithstanding. It's the grip of justification by faith alone that turned Europe on its head 400 years ago. That caused this Catholic monk to have his whole life changed Martin Luther because he read these things. So let me read it again. Rejoice not over me. Verse 8. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, it's a given. Not if. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness. Yes, seasons of darkness, brothers. Seasons of failure and darkness. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. But now don't confuse this. It's not as though the Lord has no disapproval of this thing. Because the next verse says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord. I mean, isn't it freeing not to say, I read a prayer the other day written by somebody down in Macon who gave it to me that says, once you're saved, God never has any negative feelings toward you. That's not true. And it's not true. I love my sons. I love Benjamin with all my heart. And Karsten and Barnabas and Abraham and my daughter Talitha. I would lay down life down for them. I accept them, I receive them, I want them, I work for them, I pray for them, I live for them, and I disapprove of much in their lives from time to time. Therefore, I don't think it's a contradiction of justification by faith to say, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I've sinned against Him. But you see, here's gutsy guilt now. Here's this phrase, gutsy guilt. I'm guilty. God disapproves of my committing that sin. He disapproves of that. And he is indignant that I did that. But, oh, say, I'm sitting here now and I'm feeling that. It's dark. It's heavy. It's like a cloud. I'm in there. All right. 
until I'm sitting here, I'm bearing this, only I'm saying inside, I'm going to sit here until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. Now, is that not amazing? You're supposed to say, if you don't understand it, I'm going to sit here and he's going to execute judgment against me and I'm a goner. And that's not what it says. Until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me, he will bring me forth to the light and I shall behold his deliverance. That's gutsy guilt. Gutsy guilt where we sit, we realize we failed, we realize God is justifiably indignant at us. He has not broken off our salvation He has not withdrawn as our Father and our Savior and our Lord. He's just like a father disapproving of his child's behavior here. And there's a cloud that has settled in. What family does not have that from day to day? Spank, cloud, hug, kiss, usually quick turnaround healing, especially if they're young. When they become teenagers, doesn't happen that quickly. With discipline, there's these clouds that can settle in. Of darkness. But it doesn't mean there's no longer a relationship there. And a kid who knows his father's love will say, I will bear this until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me and brings me forth to the light. Go ahead. Read it to me. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and establishes my right. Okay. I think that's I think that's basically the same. You mean you're taking the phrase establish my right? Yeah. I think executes judgment for me. Um, I suppose the one puts the emphasis on maybe a right that you can lay claim to as a justified sinner. When, when we go to God as justified sinners, we lay a claim on the judge's table. What is it? That's right. It's the cross. That's our claim. Or in the Old Testament, it would have been this the sheer, unexplained mercy of God manifest in the sacrificial system. When I go to God as a guilty sinner under his disapproval and lay my right on the table, it isn't owing to anything in me, right? We all know this. It is owing to the Son. We, we pray, Father, forgive me for His namesake. Accept me for His namesake. Bring me out of this darkness for His namesake. I own in Christ a right. This is, this is what I call gutsy, gutsy dealings with God. This is gutsy guilt. Where you go to God and say, I'm a sinner. You have now disapproved of me. You are disciplining me in whatever situation. And I believe with all my heart, you are for me and you will bring me out of this. And I lay my right on the table, namely Jesus and his righteousness and his blood and his sufficiency covering all the deeds I've ever done wrong. There is a remembrance of sin. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think 
agree that that's the balance between the remembrance of sin and um, the forgiveness of God. And that balance was for you to want to um, stay clean. You're talking about your remembrance of sins you've committed. I, I agree entirely. The comment was, um, isn't there a legitimate place for remembering sin? There is. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. He's saying to saints, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth, etc. So there's one kind of remembering. The remembering of our sin is legitimate up to this point. This is the way I would put it. Um, Paul said, forgetting those things which lie behind, I press on to lay hold on that which was laid hold on me. So you got Ephesians 2.12 saying, remember where you came from. And you've got... Philippians 3.12 saying, forgetting those things which lie behind. Is that a contradiction? I don't think it is if you take it like this. To the degree that remembering sin endears you to the grace of God, remember it. To the degree that it incapacitates you and nullifies the grace of God and, and confidence in your life, forget it. In other words, there is a legitimate function of the memory of sin, and there's an illegitimate function of the memory of sin. And illegitimate is when that memory is paralyzing you. And the legitimate is when it is making you thankful that you're saved and loving the grace of God more and feeling more confident that anybody who would forgive that will surely help me in the future. Doug? Would that be something along the line like a lesson learned? You know, I, I, I touched on this pornography thing. And the only thing that, that, that keeps me away from it is the lessons I've learned and what it does to me if I keep going back to it. Okay. And because of the fear of that, of, of right. that falling away, I flee that. All right. So that's an added reason for why there is a place for memory. That is, you learn lessons from sins that you've committed. They got you into such misery and dis discouragement and broken relationships and so on that to remember the sin is to remember the lesson and be have an incentive to fight it more successfully. Definitely. I think one thing we need to deal with is that Sean that God will forgive all the time because as one community fell and not live up to his expectation, there is the sense of why does it matter anymore, you know? Yes. Am I sure that God continues? Yes. There's the biggest rub is how to maintain assurance that God will go on forgiving. And um, I think the the assurance at that level of repeated failure comes not from looking at the measure of our success, but at the cross. And if somebody comes into my office and documents years of failure, years of failure, and they're, they're saying, in essence, I'm not sure that I'm saved because a saved person is supposed to gain a better measure of success. That's, that's the toughest of all questions. 
And the answer to that is not to say, oh, everybody does it, and so you're, you're in the same boat with everybody, and so surely you must be saved. The, the only way I know to help a person at that point is to, is to make a clean break withdrawing assurance from their own exercises and to go straight to the cross and linger there and read descriptions of the massive sacrifice and the unbelievable payment that was paid and the horrendous suffering that he endured and to, and to ask why, 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 what did this, uh, what cost called for this and say, surely that is sufficient. Is that not sufficient for you? And to have a new love for Christ born out of that and new fresh resolves and powers to get on with the fight. A helpful thing that was said to me was that the evidence of being born of God, of being his child, of being justified is not perfection, but direction. In other words, going against God, away from God this way, saying, I don't care about God, I don't care about his law, I don't care about doing what he says or relating to people the way he says relate or worshiping with his people or reading his word. I don't care about those things. I'm off to satisfy my desires. That's one direction. And then the other direction is, I want you, God. I need you, God. You're my only hope. And on this road, there are stumblings. And those stumblings are not the same as this direction. And this, these stumblings and fallings are fought with 1 John 1, 9 and 1 John 2, 1. I write these things to you, my brothers, my little children, that you might not sin. But if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the propitiation for your sins and not for yours only, but for those of the whole world. So um, we do need that assurance, Philemon. We need it. We need to so live that our lives over time begin to confirm the authenticity of our faith. But when that falls into question and we begin to ask the most horrifying question of all, am I saved? The answer there is not primarily to consult your track record. Though that may supplement, and your, your understanding of your own track record may be very wrong. I really believe that's true for a lot of people. But the main place to turn at that moment is to Christ, to the cross, to the glorious promises of the gospel, until the Holy Spirit lays those things mightily on your heart again, and you feel like, the glory of the cross will be magnified as I cast myself on it now afresh and he will be sufficient to love me and care for me and I truly am believing that he is my all in all and I have the strength now to get up and go on fighting. Um, yeah, go ahead, Randy. Um, I really um, feel inadequate a lot of times and uh, I look for recognition but it's, you know, it's a sin, you know, um, I realize it's me up, but uh, it's because of what my past is And my, I will bring back my memories. Uh, what happened to me in Stockton, California, or, or what happened wherever. But God doesn't do that. 
And the verse I claim is Isaiah 38, 17. I really love this. I read this to people all the time. I read it myself. It says, Lo, for my own welfare I have great bitterness. It is though, it is thou who hast kept my soul from the pit of nothingness. For thou hast cast all my sins behind my back. Sometimes when you feel like you're you're just not gaining any or making any headway in your walk with the Lord because of the past, I have to think about how God treats my sin. And then I don't feel like so much of a failure anymore. Because as far as he when he looks at me, those things where I made mistakes are behind the back. He's like, he won't bring them back up in front of my face according to this verse that I... said your back, right? He's cast them behind your back? His back. It says here, For thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. God has cast... And I think that's true. It says, it says in the New Covenant promise in Hebrews that he forgets. Cast them into the deepest sea. But can he really honestly be sovereign and know all everything and forget? Be forgetful? No, not ultimately. And my, my answer to that is exactly the same as my first question over here. God will do the same thing that we should do, if it would be good for us at the judgment day. I mean, the Bible says that we're going to give an account for every idle word. Every time you ever said damn or shit, you're going to remember that at the judgment day. But when you remember that, it's going to be to the glory of the cross of Jesus Christ covering it. Right? So the point is, the forgetting means they are as good as forgotten to the degree that they will never be brought up against us. But that they might be brought up for the sake of glorifying his grace in forgiveness. So he does not forget in the sense that he ceases to be God and can't remember what he did yesterday or what you did yesterday. He's only forgetting them in the sense that they, they are functionally forgotten in regard to condemnation. None of your sins will be brought up to condemn you. At the judgment day, those who are in Christ will have to read what's in the books. And some of it will be very shameful. But God will take them all and he'll throw them in the round file, throw a match in there, burn them up. And we will feel more deeply thankful when we see that big conflagration of all of our horrible sins at the judgment. Now, let me, I'm looking at my clock here, and I want to make room for, for these testimonies. I want to make room for you guys to minister to one another in small groups as you pray for each other and share some things. And uh, I want to address maybe, um, I want three things to happen before Rod and Lynn come. And they'll come in just a little bit. One, I want to say something about the word and your life in the Word with your families and with yourself. Two, I want Ben, my son, to say a few words 
about how God awakened and enlivened him to Christ in recent days so that you'll see that coming out of a pastor's family where we did devotions daily and uh, all the rigor was applied, there had to be other things too. I believe in steady state, rugged, do-it-every-day kind of ministry, and I believe in God's sovereign intervening in utterly unexpected and wonderful ways, like retreats or other things. And, and Ben, I think, has a, a few things he could say, and I haven't even asked him what he's going to say or whatever. And then a word about lust. So let me just briefly, and these are more like seeds than they are anything else. Brothers, somehow you are giving in to the thought that it is not crucial for your life to be in the Word every day. Seventy-one of you I'm talking to, at least, all right, out of 86, say you're not in the Word every day. Um, maybe it would be more important to notice that, you know, 18, one day a week, 10, two days a week, and so on. You're buying in somehow or just coasting in, probably that's what it is, is coasting in to the belief that that's not as important as eating. Raise your hand if you typically go a day without eating any food. Raise your hand. Okay, you got three fasting people in this thing. The rest of you have somehow bought in to the, to the claim that food is important for you. It probably has to do with desire, called hunger. My job here and all my life is to help beget that hunger for the Word. I don't want you to do this thing out of guilt and duty alone. We need discipline, but that won't cut it for the long haul. The same way you hunger for pizza, you need a hunger for the Bible. And that comes from a, a reordering of the way you understand the word. Romans 10:14, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Brothers, your faith will be weak without the word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Galatians 3:5, does he who works miracles among you and supplies you with the Holy Spirit, do so by works of the law, no, but by hearing with faith. Hearing, 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 hearing. you got to hear the word with faith. John 17, 17. Father, Jesus prays, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. If you want to be holy, you got to be in the word, which is truth. John 8, 32. You will know the truth and the truth will make you free. You've got to be in the truth if you want to be free. Have you ever read the, the uh, armor in Ephesians 6 and calculated how much of it relates to the Word? You've got the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. There's one. What's the belt? The belt is truth. Uh, what's the shield? Faith in what? The promises of God. Or the word of God. 
um, breastplate of righteousness, helmet of salvation, shoes. What are they? Gospel or readiness to bear witness to the gospel. So you got the belt, the shoes, the shield, the sword are all truth issues. These are truth issues. The way Satan is defeated in our life is by immersed, being immersed in truth. Gird yourself with truth. Take the sword of the word. Shield of faith in truth. Feet ready to run on gospel truth. But I, I just tell you, I am devoted all my life to the truth and the gospel. And I have read it probably as much as anybody in this room. And if I miss a day, I feel it. There, there's something about spiritual strength that is not residual. It, it's like medicine that, that if you're a diabetic, you do it daily. You don't do it once a month or weekly. And there's reasons for this. Flesh, devil, world, television, advertising. That input never stops. It never stops. Just the billboards, the newspaper, the radio is secular, secular, godless, godless. He's not there to fight and stay alive in that atmosphere, brothers. We need to be there. Preach that to yourself. Tell me, what are the biggest hindrances to reading the Bible yourself and reading it with your wife. Go ahead. I want to hear three, four, five of these. Um, this goes back a little bit for me. I was raised Catholic. I've never, ever taught any of this stuff. I had no influence whatsoever. And for years, trying to do it out of duty, for years, and it didn't work, and it didn't work, because recently God has awakened me to be able to do it on a level that you're saying, um, where I need it, and why. And, and right now, for me, it's a schedule issue. I work third shift, and my wife works days, and we just can't get together to do some things. But but it's increasing, and be able to sit down with my children now, and, and, and there's some kind of a breakthrough. Yeah. But for years, it's been the duty-driven thing, and I never got it. And I don't understand what happened, but maybe that's an issue here. Yeah, boy, what you, you just said a whole lot of things. Good night. You, you've said the background thing. That's a big issue. How many of you grew up in homes where you read the Bible every day with your parents? Raise your hand. See, there's one of the reasons. About looks like about 10 or 15 maybe. So there's one huge thing. Patterns set in your life that are not there. They're not there. Um, then the duty thing. And some of you are just, you're in process. We're all in process. But some of you are right where Doug is where it's a new thing to realize that it's not only okay, it's wonderful to do things because you enjoy them. I think there's some people who've been taught that if you enjoy it, it really isn't a good religious thing to do. It's just part of that old lust thing again. And I'm trying to help people discover that's, that's not the case. And then you brought up the schedule thing. Wives and husbands is going everywhere. It's going everywhere. Go ahead, give me some more, some more input here. So the sense of inadequacy of, you mean that that's functioning as a hindrance to, to personal reading or reading with family or 
What do you say? Well, and personal and then sharing and teaching from that. Okay, sure. Yeah, I can. That for sure. It's hard to to share, witness, teach if you feel like you don't have a good grasp on things. And I suppose it would be a disincentive to personal Bible reading if you're coming up coming up confused every day. You know, you read the Bible and you and you come out of the paragraph and you just why did they bash the children? You know, th- those kinds of of things. And and so that that clicks with me. I I I feel that. I think one big issue is hardness of heart. Um, I went to a Bible college that was required to do devotions every day, and you had to set time. If you didn't, you'd have to do work hours. It was a very regimented type of place. Um, but at the same time, um, you could do that every single day, and at the same time, not grow spiritually. Right. It's like a hardness of heart that right. you don't right. allow the words to really penetrate right. into you. Amen. So he's Will is saying that you can be put in a regimen where you're forced to do it every day and become hard as nails in the doing of it. And that's why I prayed the way I prayed at the beginning here, that I know I could probably have you all stand up at the end of today's session and resolve to read your Bible every day till the end of the year, just to the end of the year, and we could all form little accountability groups and blah, 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 blah. And, and, and nothing would be changed in six months. Nothing. I had an all or nothing mentality where I feel like you should either memorize it or study it deeply or not read it at all. Uh-huh. What I'm trying to do is just read the chapter day thing. Yeah. There were several yeah. times you said that um, the Lord can use that devotion that you just read to, to minister to somebody that's sick or whatever. And that's right. what I want to get back to. But yeah. my mentality through university has been inductive Bible study or memorize intensely or else forget. Yeah. The all or nothing mentality functions in a lot of different ways. Like if I've missed two days this week already, what's the... You know, or if I'm not memory, if I didn't get the memory verse last week, what's the use? That's a deadly mentality, Lynn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's comfortable to stay in bed instead of getting out. Uh, but you got you see there you're again it boils down to motives, doesn't it? Of uh, the discipline thing and the and the joy thing it, it'll feel a lot like discipline at that particular moment. But if you if you know ahead of time, it's like it's like making a meal, I suppose. You got to slog in the kitchen and get the dough. My wife made some of the most delicious biscuits last night. Oh, I could eat one right now. It's so good. But she had to get out the recipe which she got in Macon, Georgia, and she had to get the ingredients together, and she had to get the big heavy mixer out, and she had to get all the pieces, and pour them in there, boom, boom, boom. She had to force them into little things. She had to turn on the oven. She had to put them in the oven. All this, and we consumed those things in five minutes. They were gone. Now she she has to feel in all that process. This is worth it. This is worth it. I'm going to enjoy them. They're going to enjoy them, and I'll be happy because of that. And and so to get out of bed in the morning, you got to have some confidence. This is going to pay off. I saw another hand back there, Steve. Maybe maybe on the same level as, as growing up with it, it was um, just a habit. If I had the motions yesterday, I got a better chance of having it today. Right. I didn't have yesterday. I do believe habit forming is good. The farmer, the farmer gets out there and he digs his row day after day because a well-plowed garden or a a cared-for garden will bring up fruit. He doesn't see the fruit every day, but he knows he's got to keep doing it. Um, I try to do this practice. I can see it. 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 I can see it.
sitting out there exactly distraction is a mega mega issue one little thing put a pad of paper with you just take a little piece of paper and a pencil and as you're reading the bible or praying and either your own flesh or the devil is just firing things at you you got to do that day you're going to be late for this. you got to do this. Don't forget to call her. Don't forget to write this down. Instead of saying, get out of my mind, get out of my mind, get out of my mind, just stop, write it down, and now you've got it. Forget it and go back. I do that every morning because I am a mega distracted person because a pastor has a thousand things he can do and so many things, and the devil is always saying to me, don't forget this, don't forget that, don't forget this, don't forget that. Well, either you're going to live utterly distracted or you get quick, write them down and back to the text. Let me just say a word, um, well, David, and then I'm going to say another word. Yep, right. Tell the story. Go ahead, tell the story, David. David. David and I remember a great story where he came over to my house as an associate pastor at Olivet Baptist Church and... There was a guy there in our Sunday school class, and David, David in his inimitable way, said, Oh, what you been reading lately? And the guy said, Nothing. And David said, What did you say? You don't read at all? He said, No. <laughs> kind of the like end of the discussion. <laughs> What? Go ahead. Uh, yeah, actually, I built it up by, by talking about how excited I was about this ministry, both at the church, and then I was within a varsity helping to put together something at the university conference called Keep to Read, and how exciting it was to have the authors there and all these students and so forth. And so then I turned to Brian and said, now, Brian, yeah, sure. Tell, tell us about some of the things that you like to read. <laughs> now, look. Look, there's there's a bunch of you in here that are feeling real bad right now because you don't read. You know, you you, you put on this thing, you know, less than once a month that you ever read anything. And so I, that's not everybody's a reader. Not everybody's a scholar. That's why I put tapes on here because I know you can get your input in different ways. But you don't have to be a, a high school graduate. You don't have to be a high school graduate and you can have dyslexia with a vengeance and still read a verse a day and pray over it and thank God for it and memorize a phrase in it like, behold what kind of love the Father has for me. Stop. I'm going to take that with me all day long. And I'll just be honest with you. I read, I'm reading through the Bible. I read through the Bible every year. So you have to read four or five chapters a day. But that is not what keeps me alive. What keeps me alive is phrases, little sentences memorized for the day. One little phrase I take with me like a lozenge under my tongue and say it over and over again to myself. So don't feel, don't let the all or nothing thing get you here. Ransack the Bible. Ransack it. That is, say to the Bible, I won't let you go until you give me a lozenge. Because many of us, we read the, the chapter appointed for the day and nothing hit us. Go to another chapter. Get yourself something for the day. Ransack it. In other words, be intentional. Break out of the duty thing. You're supposed to put in 20 minutes or you're supposed to put in 10 minutes or you're supposed to put in a chapter or five chapters. 
and then you're done, my conscience is clear, off to work. You don't remember a thing you read. It has no spiritual impact on you except clearing your conscience that you did it. Now, over time, that's deadly. That's deadly. You must come away with something that you taste as precious to you so that if your workmate at school or work says, did you read your Bible this morning? You say, yeah. Well, what'd you get? Got an answer. Now, I won't embarrass you about this morning, uh, right now, but that's a pattern that you need to develop, and it'll change your, it'll change the way you read the Bible, because it'll insist that the meal be good. You know, what if you had to come to the meal every day and all they served was anchovies, or, or spinach, or what? Barf. Barf. What's that? <laughs> That would, that would produce that. You, what would, what would you do? You wouldn't, you wouldn't come back. You'd go to a different place, which is what many of you are doing. You're going to a different place than the Bible. 